Good morning, Middle. My name is Brian, and it is so good to be with you today. I want to start with a question that so many of us have dealt with before. What do you do when you've been lied to your entire life about who you are, your value, and your place in this world? I thought I'd start with something sort of light, okay? Maybe it began when your parents said you're not good enough, or an educator told you you're not smart enough, or a pastor said you're not straight enough. Maybe it was written into the U.S. Constitution that you're only worth three-fifths of a person, or that you are a savage. What do you do when surrounding culture says that you're, you're too poor, you're too dark, you're too gay to sit with us, to work with us, to be guaranteed the same inalienable rights as us white land-owning men? As the artist Lecrae says that when you've been told for 400 years you're worthless and trained to hate your skin, it starts to sink in. And tragically, many of us have succumbed to the lies that people in power tell about us. And to this day, we struggle to embrace who we really are. But I also know that there are many of us, especially right here at Middle, who have gone through the extraordinarily painful work of separating the white lies of oppression from the truth of God, who says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Can I get an amen over here in the chat box? I mean, your life is to be celebrated, not denigrated or segregated in any way. And because you've done the work, because you've got new community, because you've rejected the, the value that other people place on your life, you've not only come out stronger than ever and committed to live freely yourself, you're also committed to setting others free as well. But for just a moment, I want to ask a question to folks who look a little bit more like me. Is it possible that we have been lied to about who we are and our value in this world as well? If not directly, then indirectly through culture and privilege. That because of my skin color, gender, and orientation, none of which I had any control over, by the way. Like, I'm more superior than, more valuable than, worth more than others. I mean, what do we do? What do I do when confronted with this truth? I could get defensive. I could start talking about how hard I've worked to get where I am today, and I have worked hard, but I've also had a far different starting line and far fewer obstacles than many others. I could deny it, call it fake news. I could gaslight everybody. I could, I could put on earmuffs and tune out all the voices in my head except for those that agree with my perspective. But let me tell you a little secret. Come close, come close. Every single time I get defensive or deny the truth when it's put in front of me, my heart has to grow harder in order to keep the truth from penetrating it. And so you take my fragile ego and my hardening heart and you multiply it by 400 years and millions of folks like me and the outcome is a country that defends a 17-year-old minor who crosses state lines with a borrowed weapon in order to, quote, protect property and to condemn <clears throat> a black man for getting shot in the back, a black woman for shot, being shot while sleeping, or jogging, or eating, or reading, or playing video games, or simply walking through Ferguson with their hands up. I mean, we 
we have believed a lie for 400 years and succumbed to this, this idea that we're worth no more than the color of our skin. We don't know who we are. And so when we're confronted with what ought to be a beautiful revelation that we are all God's children. Somehow we don't hear it as good news because we have been enculturated to live in fear that what we stole from others is going to be taken from us rather than believing that in God's beloved community there is enough for everyone. So we've got to begin to untangle ourselves from the lies of white supremacy and to believe the truth that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. We as white people, we've got to do some self-examination. We've got to discover who we are beneath the color of our skin. As Reverend Jackie Lewis says, unexamined whiteness is almost as dangerous as extroverted racism. Author James Baldwin, civil rights leader Ruby Sales, both say that when, when white people learn to accept and love themselves, we will no longer have a race problem. So, so what would be a better way to respond when we're confronted with the truth about the lies we've been taught to believe about ourselves? Well, I think many of us participated in Jackie's masterclass on how to be an anti-racist. And one of the things she said is that we've got to listen to and learn from voices that we would otherwise not know or maybe uh, even consider. And so to do that, I want to take us all the way back to 1968, long before I was born. March 16th, when Bobby Kennedy announced his candidacy for president. For the previous 10 years, he and his brother John had been confronted with the truth about America, that although they were the descendants of wealthy immigrants from Ireland who were now rising in power in the United States and sort of live in the American dream, there were millions of other Americans who were suffering from racist policies that were keeping them from similar opportunities. As Attorney General, Bobby Kennedy was confronted by Fannie Lou Hamer and John Lewis about racial injustice in the South. He visited the poverty-stricken areas of Mississippi, the eastern hills of Kentucky, and the streets of L.A. in order to understand a different story than the one he experienced growing up in one of his three homes along the East Coast. And through it, he was transformed. But perhaps no one had more influence on Bobby's developing perspective than the co-founders of the United Farm Workers Movement, Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. Just six days before he announced his candidacy, he joined Dolores and Cesar, who had just completed a 25-day hunger strike in solidarity with farm workers in California who were demanding fair wages. He listened to the farm workers, and then he joined them on the picket line. Now, I'm not saying this to Harold Bobby too much, but to, but to say this, that he learned what to do with his power. And that is the same thing that Dolores and Cesar and Fannie Lou Hamer and John Lewis were doing with theirs. Listening to the people and then leveraging it for the good of humanity. Bobby was so influenced by these four leaders who were also beaten and bloodied and arrested multiple times for leveraging their power for the good of humanity. And when Bobby joined them in the fight, he was killed. Just moments 
before Bobby was shot on June 5th, 1968, he stood in front of a California crowd with Dolores Suerta by his side, and he repeated a refrain that he had said on March 16th. I have seen the inexcusable and ugly deprivation which causes children to starve in Mississippi, black citizens to riot in LA, and young indigenous people commit suicide because they lacked all hope. I think we can find answers to these problems, that we can make progress. It will not be easy, but we can do better. We can work together to heal the divisions in our country. Now, in the wake of Bobby's death, not to mention his brothers, Martin Luther King's, and many other civil rights leaders, so many folks wanted to give up because the cost of freedom is so high. But in the middle of this, Dolores Huerta stood in front of the farm workers and said, if we give up, everyone loses. And out of this came a slogan that would stimulate the farm workers to rise up and demand that they get what they deserve. See? Se puede. Si, se puede. Say that with me. Si, se puede. Si, se puede. 30 years later, a community organizer out of Chicago who would go on to become the first African-American president of the United States would adopt this slogan for his campaign. Yes, we can. Now compare everything we just reviewed with June 16th, 2015, a grandson of German immigrants and the son of a wealthy New York real estate tycoon descends from his penthouse on Fifth Avenue and stands in front of a paid audience not only to declare his candidacy for the Oval Office, but that the migrant workers, the same ones that Cesar and Dolores were standing in solidarity with, were criminals whose children deserve to be locked in cages. Unlike Bobby, who was shot, he said he could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot other people and not lose a single supporter. He would build walls, he would close borders, he would sign transphobic and xenophobic executive orders, all in an effort to, quote, make America great again. You see, the question, friends, is not whether we have power, is what are we going to do with the power in our hands? Will we leverage it for the common good, or will we only leverage it for our good? You know, the passage that John read just a few moments ago from the book of Philippians in the Bible says that Jesus had equal power with God, but he did not exploit it for his own advantage. He gave it up. He shared it. He leveraged it for the good of humanity. And so the question is, what are you going to do with your power and with your agency? Because no matter who you are or where you're from, you've got it. As the scriptures say, Y a Dios que es poderoso para hacer todas las cosas mucho más abundantemente de lo que pedimos o entendemos según el poder que actúa en nosotros. Según el poder que actúa en nosotros. God's power is at work within us. How are we going to use it? Will we use it for our own sake? Or can we leverage it for the good of humanity? Si se puede. Si se puede.